Welcome to In Transition, a program dedicated to the practice of content marketing in the public sector. Here's your host, David Pembroke. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome once again to In Transition, the podcast that examines the practice of content marketing in government and the public sector. Today, we go slightly off course. But before we go off course, I'd like to start with the definition as I do each week, because it's important, as I say each week, that we define and understand just precisely what content marketing is and how it relates to government and the public sector. Content marketing is a strategic, measurable, and repeatable business process that relies on the creation, curation, and distribution of useful, relevant, and consistent content. The purpose is to engage and inform a specific audience in order to achieve a desired citizen and or stakeholder action. So to our guest today, we head to London, but not to talk so much about content marketing today, but to talk about design, design thinking, and how in fact this process is really changing the way governments deliver value to citizens. Our two guests today, Anne-Louise Clark is the Head of Organisational Development and Internal Communication for the London Borough of Bexley in the UK. Anne-Louise has extensive experience in government and the public sector. She's worked for councils such as the North East Lincolnshire Council, the Maidstone Borough Council, and the Medway Council. Anne-Louise has experience in organisational change, learning and development, and internal communications. Our second guest is Ellen Kerr, and she's been with Bexley for four years. She was a graduate on the National Graduate Development Program, and she studied before that international relations at the University of Leeds and also at the University of Western Ontario. So to you first, Anne-Louise, hello. Hello, hi there. And Ellen, to you. Hello and welcome to In Transition. Hello, thank you for having us. So, Anne-Louise, perhaps to you first, let's talk about this innovation lab that you are running there at the borough of Bexley. What is the Bexley Innovation Lab? Okay, so it's both a mindset and a physical space. Um, at the moment, we are uh, challenged with some significant reductions and approach to funding in the public sector and particularly in local government. And it, that forces us to really redesign and rethink how we might approach delivering services to the public. And, you know, as a, as a local authority, we have our systems and processes in place for decision making. And we recognise that we need to become more innovative in the approach that we take. So we uh, established a space in the organisation called our Innovation Lab. But more significantly, we are trying to create a different way of approaching our problems, a different way of thinking about them, and a way of identifying within those tricky issues what opportunities exist for us to do things differently. And we find that having the space and a different approach to framing those issues helps us to come up with ideas that we probably wouldn't have done with our traditional way of decision making. Okay, so before we contrast how we do things or how we've previously done things and how we're doing things today, can you describe just in a little bit of detail as what is this design thinking process that you're using and what are the steps in that process? 
So typically we would um, assume that we understand the problems that we're dealing with from a professional and functional capacity in an organisation like ours. So, you know, we're made a federation really of different professionals working together to support our citizens and businesses. And we would approach things very much from a, a, a professional perspective um, and design our services around those professional perspectives. Uh, what this design thinking takes us to is to really put the user or the resident, the business at the heart of what we're doing. So it's almost like starting with a blank sheet of paper um, and taking issues and discovering uh, insight around those issues in a different way, talking more directly to our citizens and finding out what it is that's happening in their lives and how we can assist them to manage those things rather than prescribing specific um, outcomes for them. That challenges us really to go back to basics, but also to talk to the people who are most affected by the issues and find out what it is that they really need and want to help them manage that, but also to increase, increase their self-sufficiency in relation to being able to manage that themselves without being reliant on us as an organisation all the time to fix things. So we approach these by using what's called a double diamond approach. So looking at discovery first to help us actually really define what it is that we can do something about and then coming up with a range of options of where we need to focus our intent. And then once we've decided what it is that we can focus our intent on, we then go out to really discover what different ways we could fix those problems um, before coming back in to designing something that is different or enhances our current offer. So it's a much more insightful approach, taking time to really understand what's happening around the system and what's happening for people. So it's a more disciplined approach, but a more um, more imaginative and more insightful, using much more insight um, than perhaps we've done historically. So, Ellen, from your perspective, though, how well received has this approach been, given that it may be seen to be taking away the power from the experts, the people who have deep experience in these areas and therefore perhaps feel like they they know what's going on and therefore know the solutions? I think it can be challenging for people at first because, as you say, people often in local government have had a long history of working here and a long history of doing things in a certain way. Um, but usually that's not necessarily through choice. So often the systems and the things that we have are kind of inherited and have evolved over a long time. And no one's been able to sort of sit down with that blank piece of paper and say, how would we do this differently? So I think people are glad to have an opportunity to get back to fixing the problems that are really at the heart of the issues for the residents they're trying to help. I think generally people working in local government want to do the right thing, want to help people solve their problems. And so the opportunity to talk to residents and find out what the real issues are is generally welcomed. Um, but it is a challenge. It is a different way of thinking, a different way of working. It requires us to take a bit more time in that discovery stage. So we're not defining straight away what it is we're going to 
deliver what problem necessarily we're trying to solve, what we're going to get in the end. Um, and that can be a challenge, especially when we're used to having to make a really strong business case for everything that we do, that we can show is going to deliver savings or we can show exactly what an outcome is going to be um, because of the financial constraints we operate within. This way of working doesn't always allow us to do that right from the start. Um, but I think, and we expect that by going through this process, we're, we're solving a problem that's really there. We're giving people a solution that they really want and can use. And in the long run, that's going to save us much more money. Do you think that that is helping you, the fact that there is this constrained environment, as in is it, it's helping the, the adoption and the acceptance of a new way of doing things? I think it is, yeah. I think we, you know, the the funding position that we're in isn't new. The last five, ten years, our funding's only been shrinking. And I think what we found over that time is that the the ways we've used in the past to address that shrinking budget um, now aren't going to keep giving us solutions that allow us to save money. So there's appetite for looking at new ways to do things. There's appetite for trying out new solutions um, because we're kind of on a bit of a burning platform where by 2020, local government funding from central government um, won't exist anymore. We won't be getting any uh, support grant from the central government. So we really have to be self-sufficient and thinking in new ways to do that is going to be a key part of our business going forward. So, Anne-Louise, it's intriguing. So I'd really be interested if you might be able to share an example of how you have gone about solving uh, a problem in this new way that has been hard to solve in the previous ways. So I'm going to use an example um, from our uh, transport for uh, children getting to school who have uh, special educational needs. Um, so we're seeing an increase in the number of uh, school-aged children who have some kind of disability or some requirement that needs them to either attend um, a, an additional resource uh, facility or a special school. And they have an opportunity to, um, to be part of, uh, transported as part of the package. Um, but uh, costs for that are escalating quite considerably. So we were looking at ways in which we could continue to support those families. And in the process of looking at what their needs were, found actually that there were parents who could be or would be willing to fund themselves some extra um, opportunities for their children to increase their independence. And we ex extrapolated that uh, hypothesis up to actually developing a business model that suggested that across the whole of the group of parents, there were, was a willingness to fund some additional support that we could use to subsidise our statutory responsibility. So it's, it's, it's quite a challenge for the teams involved to think about developing almost a commercial model uh, that would help to maintain and enable us as an organization to be more self-sufficient financially so it's just kind of almost turning things around and changing the relationship that we have with our residents to one of a partnership or an opportunity to co-design solutions rather than um just being uh you know almost a paternalistic provider of um services that are somehow uh, uh, kind of rationed, um, so looking at, at a very different way of 
developing funding models for us to to be self-sufficient. So then does it help, though, that the, the expectations then perhaps of the community that you, you, you're dealing with and the various sort of parts of those communities who've got those the different issues and are seeking different services from government, do they actually understand and know and accept that things are changing and therefore they have to change with it and this is a way that they can have input into the change as of having as opposed to having change just imposed on them? I think there's a real appetite within our communities for doing that. Um, I think certainly there is evidence that if we include residents and businesses or whoever, whoever is in the system in the design of services, we probably get a better service than just it being um, something that is uh, replayed to them from our perspective. So we've got other examples where we're looking at co-design. Um, we spend more money in contracts with other parties to uh, supply services than we do actually on our core services. And we recognise that in commissioning those services, we do very little to involve our community in actually saying what they need and what they want and what would actually work for them. So we might commission something, uh, you know, in the children's space around children's centres and then wonder why nobody ever goes to them. Um, and because we haven't actually really involved the core group of people who we would want to engage with those activities in the thinking around what the service might look like. Um, so from our perspective, it is changing that relationship. And we know that that's going to be a challenge, but in reality, that is where we need to get, is to have a very different and recalibrated relationship with our communities if we're going to, A, ensure that we spend the money that we've got in the right way and to achieve the right outcomes. Uh, the only way really is to get to that point where we're designing the services with other stakeholders and putting our users at the heart of that, but also recognising that residents in receipt of a service are not just a homogenous group of people. Even within the receipt of service, they have many different strengths that could enable them to do things differently. So we're trying to stretch our thinking to be more about what can people do rather than what is the gap that we have to fill. So Ellen, from your point of view, as you start through this process, you know, step number one is this sense of user research and, and data analysis so that you can gain a clearer understanding. Just describe for me, if you would, just what is user research and, and how do you go about conducting good re user research? Uh, so user research is, is basically going out and talking to people who use services or who might use services that you're thinking about designing. So on a really basic level, it's just having a conversation with people. How in-depth that conversation can go varies. So I've been involved in a couple of different kinds of re user research um, in the project that Anne-Louise was talking about around special educational needs transport. We went out and interviewed um, parents and children who use that service currently in their homes um, and spent about an hour and a half 
with them or so really talking quite in depth about what their lives are like, what their daily routines are like, and trying to get a real feel for their whole experience as a family, not just their experience of using um, a particular service. So in that instance, rather than doing a survey of, say, 150 people who use the service um, and only being able to ask them a few sort of um, quantitative questions through a survey format, we really wanted to get um, deep deep insights into a fewer people. So we go uh, speak to less people, but have a more in-depth conversation where you can get really good qualitative information. So user research is, I think, about really being able to ask people why. Why is their experience like it is? Why do they do the certain things that they do? Why do they behave in one way and not another? And being able to understand that directly from the people who are using the service. And and I think the sort of fundamental idea behind it is that the people are the experts in their own lives. They're the people who know their lives best. They're the people who can give us the best insight into what a service is like. So it's them that we need to them that we need to speak to um, in order to be able to understand the system. And also, there are lots of different types of users. So as Anne Louise said, there may be people at different ends of a spectrum of need using a particular service. But there's also um, kind of internal users within the council. So the people who run the SEN, the Special Educational Needs Transport Services, they're users too because the system has to work for them as well. So we did interviews with service managers, with the people who coordinate that transport um, and that kind of thing as well. But I've also been involved in, in a couple of other projects um, around uh, our, the redesign of our council's website. So for that, we've gone out and done some more sort of guerrilla style research uh, where we've just been to a cafe or a library or a leisure centre and just kind of grabbed people for 10 minutes as they're walking past and got them to um, sit with us and use the website and observe them using it to see what they actually do and what kinds of things they use it for, how easy it is for them to use it. So it can be a really broad range of kind of short um, interactions, short conversations, or much more in-depth studies, ethnographic studies, where you know you go and live with someone for a week or a month and really observe their life. Um, so it can be a whole a whole range of different things. But the fundamental thing is about talking to people, getting out there, seeing them in their own lives, in their real context, and trying to understand their experience a bit more. So there are a couple of things out of that. Perhaps the first thing is that there's always a rush to solution. People want to, you know, can we get moving? And what you're suggesting seems to me to take time. How is it that you can build the trust and the confidence that the time that people are going to invest is going to be worth their while when they've got a problem today and they'd like it to be solved today? Thanks very much. I think what we have to um, do is make sure we're solving the right problem. So the discovery stage of going out and doing the user research is kind of a way of validating our assumptions about what the project might be or about what the problem we're trying to solve is. And I think although it can be expensive to do user research, it doesn't have to be. It's probably most expensive in terms of time and resources of the people to go and do it. But even if that is an expense, that's going to be less expensive than designing a solution for the wrong problem that actually in the end doesn't get you to the outcomes that you want to see and that people don't use 
um, or don't want to use. So it is a bit of an investment up front, but I think it's worthwhile. And, and through doing it, you learn so much that's then going to be transferable to other projects and just tells you much more about your, your community. So as the council, we're here to serve our residents and our businesses. And the more we can find out about them, the better, because that's going to help our services in so many different ways. And as well as the sort of qualitative data about a specific service we get, it's about building empathy with the people that you're designing services for and being able to understand them a bit better. So that when it comes to thinking down the line about another service or another thing you're doing, you remember these people that you've met and the conversations you've had with them and can kind of ask yourself, okay, you know, thinking of that parent what would they what would they think to this idea that we're now having and it's the kind of really good guide for you as you go through so it can feel like a big investment but i think it is worthwhile doing now just in terms of also that probably the second thing that came out of that earlier answer of yours was around segmentation and in an age where technology is driving this sense of personalization and the audience of one how do you go about meaningfully segmenting those audiences into groups so as that you can get a, a good sense of what the spread of issues are amongst different families? I think for the user research that we've done, we've kind of focused on trying to segment people by behaviours. So unlike in market research where you might say, you know, people who are 18 to 25 and working or people who are 35 to 40 and male. Um, actually, in terms of user research, when we're looking at particular services and behaviours, they're not necessarily particularly useful groups. So a better way to look at it may be to think about um, parents who are working or parents who aren't working or perhaps um, people who use a specific service at the moment or don't use a specific service at the moment. So we're thinking about the behaviours that people um, currently use and might use in the past, uh, might use in the future. So setting out some assumptions about who those different people might be and how they might react to different services. So one of the things we did with the SEM project was we thought that perhaps uh, parents who were newer to the service, newer to the system, might be more open to change, more open to looking at different ways of transporting their children to school because they hadn't been using the service in the past for a long time. So we particularly wanted to speak to some parents of children who were four or five Five years old who were just coming into the system for the first time and test their kind of attitudes towards change into independence um, because we thought they'd be different to someone who had a child who was 15 who'd been getting transport for 10 years. So it's kind of thinking about behaviours rather than um, kind of typical categories of age or um, or gender or that kind of thing to really get to the bottom of why people are behaving and doing certain things. So, Anne Louise, in the in your bio, we spoke about your uh, experience in internal uh, communications. How is your experience or your views of internal communications within councils being uh, uh, changed? I suppose by your um, exposure to design thinking, and what sort of impact is that having in the way that you're thinking about internal communications in councils? That's really interesting because both Ellen and I are uh, challenging ourselves to um, to think around design, to re-scope our approach to internal communication. So we've probably fallen into the, we know what's best for the organisation, so let's do it the way we think. And then when people don't um, engage with us, 
then we've also fallen into the trap of just thinking they're all idiots and if they were only just kind of like <laughs> take on board what we thought then the world would be a better place so that's kind of tweaked our noses really in terms of thinking differently and being careful to apply that segmentation thinking and also to start to ask our organization what they need so um, we have a you know, fairly typical approach. We have a monthly staff newsletter and we do various briefings and we've got on internet or intranet. Um, all of those things are now under the spotlight for us in terms of whether they actually work. And we're engaging a lot more with our stakeholders, our users, to actually ask them what it is that they need and where does internal communication uh, fit within getting their job done. So Ellen's doing a piece of work at the moment alongside colleagues who are looking at our external website to redesign our intranet. Um, but also we're going to think about our staff newsletter and you know whether it's meeting anybody's requirements. So absolutely right. What it does for you is suddenly give you a different way of thinking about the problems that you're also trying to solve or, or opportunities that you're trying to maximise. So I think the design thinking is not only just about what the sticky issues are, but actually around releasing opportunity because in the public sector, it can become a bit relentless in terms of um, the, the austerity measures and you can feel like you're just managing the decline of a, of a sector and, you know, for myself and others and for young people like Ellen coming in, into the sector, we don't want it to be about doom and gloom. We want it to be about what opportunities can we release. But in order to do that, we really need a different way of thinking. So, yes, you do start to apply it to your own world. Um, and the other thing I think that we probably haven't touched on that is very attractive is that this is not about finding a solution so you talked about rushing to the solution, which I absolutely recognise. But this is almost about like testing things out and it feeling safe to test things out. So for us, I guess in many other industries, you know, you lock on to a solution very quickly and you feel satisfied that you've reached that. And then it's full on to implementation. Um, and then you do a bit of evaluation and find that probably it hasn't actually solved the problem. So you then design something else. The approach that we're taking now is much more about prototyping and starting small, which is also challenging for us because we like to have, you know, end to end everything sorted very uh, with a, a high level of certainty. Whereas this approach is about allowing there to be more uncertainty and more ambiguity and for smaller testing of hypothesis and hunches before you scale things up. So, you know, it's about testing whether things are desirable, whether they're viable as well, and whether they're feasible before going into a full-blown um, new service or new way of doing things, which, which is great because it's about iteration and responding and being agile in the way you think about things. So that has a great deal of attraction to us as well. I can understand it would have a great attraction to yourself and to Ellen, but I just still think about a lot of those people who are rusted on, they've been doing it forever a particular way. It must be very challenging for those people. 
Um, yes, I think it is. And we've, we've seen some reaction to that. Um, we've seen some um, typical responses to change in relation to um, evaluating the approach very quickly. Um, most people can see where it could, could work in other, other people's services. <laughs> so they're quite, you know, they, we have many conversations. Oh, I can see this is a great idea. Fantastic. Uh, would you like to go and work with somebody <laughs> in another part of the building? So what we're trying to do also is work with the work with those who see the benefits. Um, so really capitalizing on the early adopters to give a little more um, traction. So rather than trying to convince the ones who are kind of clearly going to find fault in everything that we suggest and the approach. And one of the big things, you talked about user research, people are quite uncomfortable when we say we're not going to do a big survey of every resident or everybody in the system because um, we're not convinced that that will give us the richness of insight that we need. Um, and also... People are a bit uncomfortable when we talk about we don't, you know, if we've got like a lobbying group of parents or or typical or regular complainants, why we're we not asking them? And it's like we want to say because we already know what they think because they tell us <laughs> very vociferously. Actually, what we're interested in is some of the people who are at the edges of a system and how is it that they manage their lives and what do they think? Um, so yeah, there are lots of challenges, but. Uh, we're very fortunate in that there is a, a kind of head of steam here to think about design as an approach and to think about being iterative. Um, and in many ways, it's it's kind of just opening people's ideas to the small and starting things small rather than going with a big bang. And so, Ellen, perhaps to you for a final question, how do you avoid the sense of uh, survey fatigue, you know, and people sort of looking around and thinking, oh, my God, here comes Anne-Louise or here comes Ellen. They've got another clipboard and another set of questions. How do you go about getting that right cadence in terms of getting the answers that you need, be they external or internal? I think with with the user research that we do, the key has been to put the time and effort to make sure you're speaking to the right people. So, um on the, on the first project we did around the SEN transport, we spent a lot of time thinking carefully about exactly who we wanted to talk to, what assumptions we wanted to test with them and, and why. Um, but once we'd done that piece of work and started approaching to people to speak to, um, I, I don't remember anyone saying they didn't want to be involved in the survey. No one said that, you know it was um, invasive or took up any of their, too much of their time or anything like that. So everyone that we've approached to be involved has wanted to get involved. And I think that's because people, people like talking about their lives. People like sharing their experiences. Um, people can appreciate that you're trying to make things better, that maybe that's not going to happen straight away, um, but that they're feeding into improving a service. Um, so generally, we, we haven't so far experienced the kind of fatigue you talk about, I think partly because, you know, it's not sending out one survey link after another and just asking people to fill out the same questions 20 times. Because it's a much uh, deeper conversation, asking different sorts of questions to what people have been asked before, I think they're really willing to participate or uh, they have been over the last six months or so 
ask me again in another six months and maybe no one will be talking to me, but you never know. <laughs> okay, well, I, I've, I'm, I'm sure that won't be the case. It, it really is, <laughs> is, is fascinating, I think, what you're doing in this design space. Uh, and congratulations for having the, uh, you know, the courage and the initiative to get out there and start to design and, and put, the, um, you know, the user, the audience at the centre because in – the podcast that we we normally talk about here is we talk about communications, we talk about audiences, and we talk about putting the audience at the centre and then building that those content programs around, which help to inform, engage, you know, excite and delight people. But I'm sure the audience really today has in, enjoyed um, your very cogent, you know, descriptions and examples of how design thinking is certainly changing things there in the borough of Bexley in, in the UK. But also, I can see. There is so much application for this design thinking process as it relates to a content marketing process because it does share many similarities, I think, in some ways, first cousins in, in lots of ways. So thank you very much um, for your time today. Uh, really enjoyed it. Uh, fantastic. And I look forward to speaking to you, audience, again next week when we explore again this fascinating world of technology as it changes the way people communicate in government and public sector organisations. Bye for now. You've been listening to In Transition, the program dedicated to the practice of content marketing in the public sector. For more, visit us at contentgroup.com.au.